0: This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, verses 10 to 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks will and flax, and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor And reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant." But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is God's word.
1: Amen. This is going to sound bad. It's not that I'm not attracted to her. It's just that I'm not that attracted to her. I think when God shows me the one, I'm just going to be spectacularly head over heels, you know? And at that question, I didn't really know how to respond to this young man sitting in front of me. On the one hand, I wanted to be honest about my own story. I didn't want to indicate that when I saw Katie for the first time, I didn't have tractor beams on her, excited to see her. As we sat in the back of a kitchen, as I dried the dishes that came out of an industrial-sized washer, as she handed each one to me, it was a great scene, each one coming to me, the washer steamy hot, coming everywhere. I grabbed and dried all 220 dishes very slowly. So I could just maximize my time with her. They had to kick me out of the kitchen that day. And that was the reality. But I figured because of that reality, it was best that I not just rely on my own experience, but with this young man, open the Bible to talk about this issue of women and attraction and dating. Because it wasn't the sort of offhand conversation I was having, see, in the back of the church lobby or somewhere in town. This man called me to set up an appointment. We were meeting in the loft of a coffee shop. He wanted to know how to choose and seek the right kind of spouse. And so we opened the Bible. And I knew there were two spots in the Bible that, describes searching for a spouse and both are actually in the Old Testament wisdom books. There is Song of Solomon which is about choosing a spouse eyes wide open. In this book a man's attracted to, he pursues, he courts and eventually marries a woman in in full array of visual details, color and description, the kind of thing that makes a grown man blush even when he reads it. That's the the song, so it was almost, if you would, seeking a spouse, eyes wide open. And then there is Proverbs 31, which is like seeking a spouse, choosing a spouse, eyes shut. All the qualities that not only last, but are most relevant to a flourishing marriage, the other 23 and a half hours of the day, are here in Proverbs 31. Qualities that aren't necessarily accessed by an immediate look, by an immediate attraction to someone else. Okay. So we read these qualities together, and we talked through them, we prayed, we kind of grappled together, we could watch him sort of grappling with him, so we prayed again, and we left, and I followed up, and two months later, he broke up with her, citing lack of attraction, first to me, and then more importantly, to her, as the reason why. And then chaos ensued, for both of them in their lives. So today is kind of like a second chance for me, all right, to to read these qualities, to talk through them with you, to grapple together, to pray together with those who still desire to choose a spouse. And for some of us, maybe it's a second chance for those of us who are married to read, to listen, to grapple and pray with me to become the kind of spouse God is calling you to become. So, men and women, husbands and wives, I'm hoping this is a second chance to look together at the kind of qualities we want to grow into or choose in the person we will one day be married to. Here's the background. We're going to start with this man. We're going to start with the man this morning, which might sound weird because Kirsten here read primarily about who? A woman. A woe man Right? So why would then, will we begin with a man, where is the man in here in our passage? Well, actually, he is front and center. It would help us to understand two things about this passage before we go any further. Number one, it is a poem. And we know this because it's written in something called an acrostic. And the idea is that every, every two lines begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right, so we see this also in places like Psalm 119, Aleph, Bet, Gimel. Dalit. It's like our version in English of A B C D. So he's kind of saying, here, I'm giving you a poem. This guy is a poet who in fact did know it in this case. All right. So we know that. This poet does also does something very interesting. And the way he organizes the poem, he organizes it in what's called a chiastic structure. And if you have your bullets in with you, you can figure out what that is. And I'm not trying to be technical or go over your head, but this is actually important for understanding what the poet wants us to get our eyes on what he wants us to, to, to see highlighted in this poem. So if you still go to the back of your bulletin, you'll see something that looks like, almost like in the shape of a greater than sign in math, right? Like a V going horizontal. And this is a kinastic poem. What that means is the same theme in the first line of the poem is dealt with in the last line of the poem. And the same thing in the second line of the poem, you'll see it marked B, Is dealt with in the second-to-last part of the poem. The same theme dealt with the third line of the poem, the third-to-last line of the poem. You get the point? So it's inching closer, it's inching closer, it's inching closer until it gets to the middle where we find in the, the, the middle line no companion, no dance partner, no friend, no parallel verse. And the poet wants us to focus our attention first there. It is the only line, or lines in this case, the only verse, that doesn't have a parallel companion, a mirror, if you will. So the chiastic causes us to focus on the center. And we find the very center of our poem, verse 23. Read that with me if you would. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders in the land. So the central idea here is that a godly wife helps to shape a man to be like this. That's the central idea. When you have a godly wife, she will help shape a man to be like this sort of man. But it also gives every man a reason to pause and ask himself, do I aspire to be like this man? Right? Am I becoming more a man like this? And for any unmarried woman, it gives us cause to ask ourselves about a future spouse. Am I seeking a man who is like the man I see in verse 23? And for those of us who don't fall into in any of these categories, but you know someone who does, you can glean wisdom, and you can pray for us in these situations as well. So, We're going to look first in the middle, as the poet wants us to. The husband you choose and become. So what we find out about this woman is that her husband is part of something bigger than himself. He dispenses trustworthy teaching and counsel. And he casts a wide influence. So let's talk about this in terms of what it means to be a godly husband. And the husband you may want to choose. Number one, he is part of something bigger than himself. He is part of a group of elders. Prior to there being a king in Israel, elders were a group group of men who worked together to preserve the unity of the community and represent that community to the outside world. All right, so they're supposed to keep cohesion and be a good representative to who we are as a people to everyone else looking on, pagan nations and other Hebrew communities. The husband, described in verse 23, is among these elders. He spent his spare time not making more money for himself nor carousing at night, nor was he sort of one of these guys who went to his garage at night just to do his own thing, to be by himself. No. He joined other men whose primary concern was caring for a larger community. That's what he cared about. Men, when we drift, we tend to be lone wolves, right? We don't mind being in the pack sometimes, but in our heart of hearts, when we kind of drift and go our own way, we are lone wolves. And remember, Proverbs written to young men, not surprisingly, we find chapter 18, verse 1, which says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Such a man breaks out against all sound judgment. And yet there's something about us as men, right, that wants to sort of just, I want my time, there's a way. It's very difficult, then, ladies, who are perhaps seeking a man to tell from, from his job or his workplace, where, where teamwork's often mandatory, right, if you can see such a man. It would be wise to look for a husband who, who voluntarily demonstrates this in other areas of his life, voluntarily demonstrates that he wants to be part of something bigger than himself. Whether it's a small group, a ministry team, just his family, some good and godly friends that he has, do you see evidence in his life that he can participate with others, that he can submit to others, that he can contribute to others? In other words, is he part of a wolf pack? Right? We have lone wolves and there's a wolf pack. That's the kind of man, single ladies, that you you want to be seeking if God is calling you into a relationship. Someone who can be part of something bigger than himself. And let me address also fellow husbands. Did your wife have to drag you here today? I'm glad you're here. All right, there's a little bit of snickering there, some nervous moments. I saw someone just sweat. Uh, Did your wife have to drag you here today? Are you one of these guys who sometimes says to other men, you know, church isn't really necessary, is it? Like, why don't we have to all get together? I have my own spirituality, you have yours. Is it really necessary? Are you resistant to talk to other men about anything of substance or vulnerability? Then that might be you drifting into isolation. Remember, Such a man typically is seeking his own desire. Don't be deceived. I want to encourage you, men, lay down your pride. Invite the community, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, first into your life to restore you and strengthen you to join with others in this fight for life, this fight against sin, the fight against temptation, the fight against the lies of the enemies. We need other men. So the first thing. We see in this man as that he wants to be part of something bigger. He's part of something bigger than himself. But also, this man dispenses trustworthy counsel and teaching. Look at these words here: "When he sits," and those might just seem like, "Well, those are just normal words." I'm sitting. You're, you know, everyone else in here is sitting. But this isn't the kind of idea where this is a group of guys sitting around in kumbaya circle fashion, kind of shooting the breeze, talking to each other. When it says here, "When he sits." We're talking here about the the bench of authority from which a Hebrew elder would dispense counsel and teaching. That's the kind of sitting that's being talked about here by our author. He's the kind of man who's well acquainted with the truth of God's law, but not just well acquainted with it. He knows how to apply it to life, his own and others. What this means, what what it doesn't mean when choosing a husband is he doesn't mean that he has to be a pastor, elder in a church. He doesn't have to parse Greek. He doesn't have to have the whole book of John memorized. Please don't look for that kind of man. He likely doesn't exist. But what it does mean is he should be someone who cares about the truth. And he at least applies it to his own life, if not that of his friends. He should be the kind of guy that when you go out with him maybe on a date, because you you know how the Bible talks about submitting to those in authority over us? Well, what about a boss that you strongly disagree with? It's that kind of man who's who's taking God's truth, say from Romans 13, and trying to apply it to his life and he's questioning he's grappling with it. That's the kind of man you want to seek out. It's the kind of guy also who reads his Bible in the morning and spends the rest of his day trying to apply what he read in his life. He's going to try to do it with his life. He's up, he's reading, He has to try to rationalize or justify what he's reading. He's like, you know, I'm going to try to apply this. Help me, Lord, apply this. I once heard a wise man say that if within us we find nothing over us, then we will succumb to what is around us. Does that make sense? So if within us we don't have a word, we don't have a Lord that can guide us and be our moral, ethical, spiritual compass in life, then we will succumb to everything around us. Husbands and future husbands are you regularly getting God's truth in you and then submitting to it as well. Otherwise, we will start to cave. We will have no defense against the outside world. This, this husband, though, there's one more little detail on this verse worth noting. This husband casts a wide influence. If you notice at the end of these two lines, it says the husband's known in the gate, and then it says that he sits among the elders of the land. Uh, Bruce Waltke, who's like sort of the foremost commentator on the book of Proverbs, he's a, he's a scholar, he's got like two books this thick on, on this, and he knows way more about this stuff than I do, but he says that of the land and city gates are paralleled. They're suggesting the elders' influence extended beyond the city to the larger jurisdiction. So he's in a community, but the elders were so influential that that influence went beyond the land. Now, a godly man influences and he wants to influence even even when he's not influencing. The apostle Paul laid out his strategy of influencing the lives of others. He said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, "Imitate me or follow me as I follow the example of Christ." Some translations say, "Imitate me as I imitate Christ." It's very simple. Come along with me. I'm going to follow Jesus. Let's do this together. That was his mode of influence. So you want to be asking the question, ladies, is this a man who is influencing others around him, even in small ways? And if he's not, does he even have that aspiration to influence others? That's important, right? Husbands, current and future, if you're weak in this area or that, that desire to influence others has kind of been snuffed out, I want to encourage you, get around people who are imperfectly, certainly, but imperfectly imitating Jesus. Get around them as much as you can. Be near them. That's the best way to be growing and have a wider influence yourself. So that is men. Now we we turn our attention, shift gears to the Proverbs 31 woman. She looks after, she trusts, she loves, she works, her cup overflows, her value is priceless. And I know that even as I'm naming all these descriptions of this woman, there is a knot forming in the stomachs of many of you ladies. You're like, oh my gosh. Am I this thing? Am I that thing? And rather than reviewing it as a healthy challenge, you hear this list read. Maybe it was first read up here by, by, by Kirsten. And you feel it not as a challenge, but as a condemnation. It is everything I'm not. I'm feeling worse and worse and worse about myself. And this is in part because, as one woman put it, our culture sends women mixed messages. We are to accept ourselves unconditionally, as we are, yet... We are to be our best in every area, doing everything better and faster all the time, right? And so we see the Proverbs 31 woman oftentimes on Facebook, on Pinterest, right? She's doting, she's full of love, and she's full of trust. She's working, her cup's overflowing, her husband values her, not realizing that we're looking at the best 10% of that woman's life. That's posted on social media, right? And you ladies realize that, correct? Like this is the best of the best, maybe even best 5%, in some cases 1%. And yet, that's the Proverbs 31. That's the woman we want to be. So let's get some perspective here on Proverbs 31 for a minute, if we can. First of all, she is not a real person. Okay? So this woman being described here in Proverbs 31 is not real. She's an ideal. How do I know this? If you read up a little bit, and we should always be reading up and down in our Bibles, get the context. Proverbs 31, chapter 1. Look at that with me, if you would, if you have a Bible. But you can just listen to it otherwise. This, this whole chapter says the words of King Lemuel. Listen to this. An oracle that his mother taught him. In other words, it is written by a boy's mother. Who tends to be the most idealistic person in a marriage? Is it the husband? Certainly not. <laughs> is it even the wife? Getting closer. No. It is the man's mother. Correct? Who is this woman? Mm-hmm, right? And we look at her like that. This is what happens. And that doesn't mean, a, certainly what's written here is wisdom. It's absolutely breathed out by the word of God. But I want to circle back to the reality that Proverbs was written primarily for young men. And in this case, a mother speaking to her young child. All of you young women get to peek into it. But we should do so as, and here's another important point, a challenge, not a condemnation. Just as it was written as a challenge for this young man's future spouse, so a woman should use this to look ahead, not look behind. Not to look back at this as some sort of checklist as you're going through and just to feel just awful about yourself, but to look ahead at the person God is calling you to be and focusing on that. So let's do that together. The wife you choose and become. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll meet again in the middle of our poem and we'll sort of work our way outwards. And and as we work our way outwards, you'll see first sort of line F there. Line F is is the closest we get to to G is in the middle. Then you see F on both sides. It's going to sound too technical. Oh, well. Uh, First of all, she's a woman who looks after. She's a woman who looks after. Look at verse 22. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. This fine linen was normally imported as was literally wool-dyed purple. One material comforted, the other was thick to provide warmth. Verse 24, we also find that she makes linen garments, she sells them, she delivers them, she delivers sashes to the merchant. She sells and she trades in order to get the very best for her family. So however you decide to divide up responsibilities as husband and wife, a man finds great solace knowing that his partner is taking care of certain details, whatever they may be, that would otherwise distract him for working for his family, for, for laboring for his family. We know this especially husbands and wives of young kids, right? Where we so appreciate when our wives take care of certain details that allow us to be a man who's attentive when he's home, but also laboring hard and with focus when he's at work. People don't often realize how God used women to enable Jesus and the disciples to focus on their mission, the task at hand. Read sometime, if you would. Write this down, Luke 8, 2-3. Luke chapter 8, 2-3. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and we're told others, supported Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. They cared for them. They were, they were nurturers to them. And so should a wife to her husband. Let's move on, though. She also, see here in letter E, no, we're working backwards, but that's how the poem goes. She trusts. She trusts God with her present and she trusts with her future. You see that in verse 21, right? She's not afraid of snow for her household. The present condition from November to February, and sometimes freezing conditions in Palestine. She's not afraid of that. It doesn't bother her. Verse 25. She laughs at the time to come. Ha ha ha! Right? I don't know, if, like, literally if you ladies do that. But, uh, but, but, you, but that's the idea, that whatever the future may hold, come on. Now, I am sort of the opposite in my feeling. I am the warrior and Katie provides for me a rush of relief every time she demonstrates in front of me her trust in God. And so there have been times, as I'm sure you guys have faced, like, we've wondered, how are we going to come up with the funds to pay for a light bill, and an insurance bill, for our, our kids' school fees? And Katie will just look at me and smile. she'll so start praying, Jesus, we just look forward to how you're going to provide. And it just provides us this, this rush of relief and even faith into my soul. And I'm so grateful to her for that. She is acting on faith and so nourishing me with faith. Husband needs, feels to, oftentimes needs to feel strong outside of his home. But when he, when he comes home, he can lean on his wife for that sense of confidence, he can be vulnerable. She can demonstrate trust in God. It's so helpful to him. So she looks after, she trusts. She also, as we see at letter D here, she loves with her deeds and her words. Right? Verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not someone who, who rationalizes a way why she can't help or, or why a person's gotten stuck in the situation in the first place. It might be their fault after all why they're here and poor and needy. No, she, she opens wide her hand to them. And she opens her mouth, this is in verse 26, with wisdom, teaching about this kindness, teaching of literally loving kindness, has said, love. It's on her tongue. So she does it, and then she shares about it with others. She, she teaches about it. She, she teaches her family how to be this way. Now, men, sometimes when your wives are, are this generous, it will sometimes downright annoy you and feel irrational. But such a woman elevates us. As men, and last night I was finishing typing up my my shorthand notes for today, for the sermon, and uh, Katie comes up the stairs and she says, uh, "Hey, look what I found!" and and she opens her sort of sleeve of her coat and she has a baby chick. I she I know she has a baby chick that she found outside the door, uh, all by itself, and then she explains this to me, I. Thought, my first thought was, remember what happened last time, right? Uh, we have tried this experiment before, and the fate of that baby chick was, was, was not good, all right? So we didn't know what we were doing. My second thought was then she probably figured that out, so let's rationalize this away, right? Like, honestly, do we want to have this in our home, the disease? Like, you're handling it with your hands, wear your gloves. I knew that wasn't going to fly. The third thought finally was, you know, as she walked down the stairs, way to go. That's the right thing to do. And in my heart, it, it elevated me. It made me think, you know what, this is the compassion of Jesus she's showing to me. So she's demonstrating and teaching not only her whole family but me how to have open-handed compassion. And that's what a godly wife does. But now I swear, if I hear that, that chick again tonight at midnight, all right, I'm going to make a tent for it outside. It's going to live somewhere else, all right? But, but so far, so good. So far, so good. All right, so <laughs> she, she looks after, she trusts, she loves She also works, let her see here, she works. Men, choose a woman who's a hard worker. I've been around lots of guys before talking about spouses we should be seeking and potentially choosing. And one of the last things a man will mention is, man, she's a hard worker. Man, that woman, she's so disciplined in her life, she's just disciplined about everything, right? Men don't normally talk, particularly around under men, of those kinds of qualities. But man, what a gift that is to a husband. We should look for it more. And Proverbs presents here a balanced picture of a businesswoman whose primary concern is her household, right? It's, it's a balance of she's a, she's a businesswoman whose primary concern is her household. So look at, at the text with me here. She has the business know-how to buy a field, verse 16, if she does so, in order to, to plant a vineyard and work it for her family, for her family to reap the benefits of that field. She looks to the ways of her household, verse 27, and provides food for her household, verse 15. Yet she perceives that her merchandise is profitable, verse 18. So it's an interesting balance, isn't it? In her book, here it is, by the way, A Woman's Wisdom by Lydia Brownback, because at this point I should be quoting other women and not speaking here as a man, because it's going to be some hard things to hear here. So uh, she summarizes this way. Christians typically come down on one side or the other, on whether it's biblical for wives, especially mothers, to work outside the home. She says, we see from Proverbs that's indeed biblical so long as it's applied within the framework of everything else Scripture teaches about wives and mothers. Specifically, Brownback quotes Titus 2, 3 through 5. I'm going to have it here up on the screen. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self control pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So the picture here is of older women training younger women to focus the bulk of their energies on domestic responsibilities. Hush falls over the crowd. (laughs) If a woman is being financially supported by her husband while raising kids, Lydia Brownback, she notes that Paul's worth can, can serve as a kind of siren to check our motives. And she gives a very helpful question for such women who desire to work or to go back to work after having kids. And here's the question. She says, will my work benefit my family overall or just me? May I ask that again? This is a great question, I think, to, to take these two scriptures, Proverbs and Titus, to balance them and examine our hearts. Ask the question, well, am I working? benefit my family overall or is it just to benefit me? When we moved here, Katie had to go back to work after many years of not working and having kids. And she has stayed back at work because we felt like it benefited our family and it regularly allows her to use gifts of evangelism, of outreach to others as well in compassion. But we have to cons- consistently go back to that question. Consistently revisit it. Right? Is this actually for the benefit of our family? Or are we doing this for some other reason? I think that would be a good question for us as well, as as Brown back asks. So she works. She works hard. B, her cup overflows. She's someone whose cup overflows. Notice in verses 11 through 12, she's a blessing to her family. The heart of her husband trusts her. She does him good. But she also receives blessing from her family, right? Verses 28 and 29, her children rise up, call her blessed. Her husband also does the same, praises her. How do you become such a person? Jesus describes how in John 7, 37 through 38. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, whoever comes to Jesus to receive blessing, to receive life, to receive the honor, and know reminders that you're a child of God and his heir will then be able to overflow blessing in others' lives only to be filled again, right? And it's like this cup that's perpetually filled, right, to be spilling over into others' lives. And if you don't give to others, it's hard to receive. But that's the kind of person Jesus describes here. Her cup overflows. Finally, her value. Focus on verse 30 here. Charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You remember at the beginning how I talked about Proverbs 31 is choosing a spouse eyes shut, if you will. And I'm thinking in particular here about two men in the Bible when I, when I think of that idea of choosing a spouse based on eyes shut. thinking of Samson, if you remember him, who, who chooses a spouse with his eyes wide open. He chooses a woman named Delilah who proved to be his destruction because all he sought was what he saw in front of him and what he longed for and lusted after with his eyes. And you remember in God's providence what's taken from Samson towards the end of his life, right? His eyes, gouged out. The only way he can now make decisions for the rest of his life is through with his ears, with his hands. Whereas a man named Boaz, this was a man who asked a young woman working in his field, who asked about a young woman who's working in his field, and he hears her story. And he hears about her reputation. And this woman asks, why, like, are you showing favor towards me? Her name is Ruth. Boaz replies to her, but I know about the love and kindness you've shown your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And listen, I have heard, I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. And he marries such a woman. A woman he sees but he hears with his ears. He hears about her reputation. He hears about the kind of woman she already is. He hears about the habits she's already built up before getting married. Men, let me just tell you the honest truth. There will always be someone better looking than your spouse. I know I can potentially offend a lot of people here in saying that, but that is real, isn't it? There will always be someone better looking. You may not have met her yet, and you're not going to ever say that to your wife. That's why I'm saying it. And my wife's not here in front of us right now. (laughs) should note that as well. We are so prone to, to, to see with our eyes, men, and lust for more. Proverbs twenty seven twenty says, Sheol and Abaddon, those are the two Hebrew words for basically the grave. The grave is never satisfied. Right? People will always die and will always take more deaths. Look at the second half of this verse. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. And then, when we use our eyes to make decisions about our wives, usually ends very poorly. Proverbs 31 is, is challenging men like, to, like Boaz, shut your eyes, as it were, and use your ears to learn how to value a woman, a godly woman. What is her reputation? Does she look after others? Does she trust Jesus above everyone else? Does she love those in need and pass on that love for others? Does she work hard in the office and stay disciplined outside of it? that kind of woman. I want to close this morning by giving you some good news. A few months ago, I heard from my now single coffee house friend. I talked about in the beginning. He has since joined a team of men and women serving his church through evangelism. He has become a certified alpha course leader, which is a course that helps curious seekers understand the gospel and hopefully trust their lives to Jesus. So he's he's part of a team dispensing trustworthy truth and counsel. He's part of a team bigger than himself. In other words, he's living like a godly husband that he eventually wants to be. And he said to me in his own words that he now looks for different qualities in a woman, praise God, and says, you know what, Ryan? I think I just had to fall on my face, lay down my pride, and admit that Jesus' way was better than mine. He was right. Earlier, we sang the song, Came to My Rescue, whose lyrics include, My whole life I place in your hands, God of mercy, Humbled, I bowed down in your presence at your throne. I called and you answered. You came to my rescue. He still does today for husbands and wives and future ones as well. Let's pray. God, for those of us who are married, we confess that we have failed. We have fallen short, men and women, husbands and wives, of who you've called us to be. Please forgive us through Christ. Restore us, strengthen us, to be a Proverbs 31 man and a Proverbs 31 woman. Lord, for, for those of us who are not yet married, for those of us who've often searched out for a spouse only with our eyes, and deep down we know that's true. That's what we've looked for. Forgive us, restore us, and help us listen out for the kind of, of qualities of a godly husband, a godly wife. And for those of us who are, who are in a life of singleness, and maybe we seem called to a life of singleness, Help us be people who, who pass on this wisdom to others, who, who pray for those in seasons of their life where they're, they're dating or they're looking or they're, they're, they're seeking after, that we could be a good friend to them. That we could be a good friend to husbands and wives as well and love them with godly wisdom. Most of all, Jesus, we ask for your help. We know we need help to be the, the husbands you've asked for us to be and the wives you've called us to be. We ask this all in your name. Amen.